kidding. Fine, I'm fine. I'm back in my house, Kara. What? You've moved yeah. out of the hotel and back into your house? I moved out of the residence inn and back into the house to, yet last night and was vacuuming debris up all night long. And so how did, because I know like the, the, the repair, whatever, smoke remediation folks kind of mess things up. How is it now? Messed up. Still? Are they coming back to fix? They're coming back to fix some things, but our insurance adjusters like get them out of there and just have the contractor come in and fix them because they keep making new things. Like uh, they brought a pot in to move all of our stuff out, but then they did weird stuff like leave all the books in the hallway right below the attic hole where they're blasting it with baking soda. So all of our books are covered with baking soda. We have a, a triptych painting, a three board, three canvas painting, a huge painting i think you probably saw it when you yeah house, the possum yeah painted by my friend matt doherty so they took two panels of it and put it in the pod but they left one sitting in the hallway and then they set up the chlorine bucket next to the painting well i'm so, sorry that's really crappy it's all it's crappy for my poor long-suffering wife who works from home yeah teaching on zoom during a pandemic so mm -hmm. If she listens, which I know she doesn't. My wife is awesome. <laughs> I love that. She has suffered through all of this burning down the workshop, living in a hotel, Easter thing, more than any of the rest of us. The rest of us are inconvenienced at yeah. best. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Because in the middle of all this, I got the announcement that I'll be promoted to full professor in the fall. It's like, I my house down, but look over here. <laughs> Sorry, honey, but I'm gonna have a raise in the fall. I mean, but that's exciting. Like you're there now. You have fully arrived. There is no position within professor that you can like move up to now. That's really exciting. Now I can just phone it in and stay home gardening. I'm so jealous. I'm gonna go check to see if my coffee. You can start maybe telling everybody what we're gonna talk about. Oh, can I have a coffee, by the way? Could use that. So on uh, this episode, Kara, we are going to be talking to Jacob Griffin, Sophia Dent, and Steph Berger. I'm just going to let them introduce their qualifications, but I will say that they are the co-editors of um, the recent special issue of American Journal of Human Biology called Biocultural Approaches to the Plasticity of the Human Skeleton. And they all, um, and then there are three papers that they are all in various orders co-authors of. So we interviewed Sharon DeWitt last week, whose article is in this issue. And now we are sort of going backwards and interviewing the editors and then covering three of the papers. And we want to talk to them about this, like what inspired them to put this special yeah. edition together. Yeah, it's two grad students. Uh, Sophia Dent is now Dr. Sophia Dent. She got her PhD last year, but she is a visiting professor at Appalachian State, where we have a good friend. Mark Kissel was there. <laughs> So I'm Chris, as uh, the, the name there on the Zoom screen did not tell you, but um, I should say, say it for our audience because we just said our usual intro without actually saying who we are. So welcome to Sauce of the Science, everyone. That's Kara right over there in my Hi, everyone. left screen. <laughs> and if you could all introduce yourselves, that would probably be the best way to go. I'm Sophia Dent, and I'm a visiting assistant professor at Appalachian State University in Boone. I'm Jacob. I go by Jacob. Uh, Jacob Griffin, I am a fifth year PhD student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Steph is 
preference, so stuff is fine. I will answer to both. I am a six-year PhD student in the department at UNC Chapel Hill, and I'm actually defending my dissertation next week on the 14th. Wow, congratulations in ahead of Thank time. You. Audible clapping. Yeah, so you all either currently are or were, in the case of Sophia, graduate students at UNC Chapel Hill, which I guess might make sense in why you were collaborating on putting together this special issue for AJHB. And, and we'll get into that a little bit more, but I don't think I was aware of that. Like, as we've been promoting the articles from the special issue, I don't think it ever actually gelled in my mind. I'm just like, huh, these same three people are on three different papers together with three different authorship orders. What's going on? And I finally put the pieces together. <laughs> but before we get into that, uh, we like to start our show in kind of the same way. And that's getting to know a little bit about each of you and kind of your anthropology origin stories and what led you to get into anthropology and then actually decide to pursue it as a career. And I'm gonna do the order on my screen. Uh, Steph, would you mind kicking us off? Sure. So I did my undergrad degree at University of Michigan and then go blue, obviously. I then decided to take a year off to do field schools and I did the um, UCL bioarchaeology field school in Ostapalia, Greece, which really was sort of like the big push to be like, okay, I really love doing this. I can see myself doing this. And I loved the people, obviously. So I decided to get my master's at UCL working with Dr. Simon Hilson and Dr. Carolyn Rando. And then my family requested that I return to the States. So I came back to do my PhD here at UNC um, with Dale Hutchinson. And yeah, that's, that's currently where I'm at. I must ask, because I was an undergrad at Michigan as well. Um, who did you work with? Like, so who I professors? Was, it was kind of a weird point because a lot of the like older faculty in archaeology were retiring. So I had like taken a couple classes and was hoping to work with John Speth. Um, but then he retired, like I think my sophomore or junior year, um, and then started working with his wife, Leslie Young, and Carla Sinopoli out of the like, kind of Asian studies department. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, no, th those are my old stomping grounds. So there's a lot of Michigan connection when we start doing these interviews. It comes up again and again and again. Uh, but yeah, thank you. Sophia, how about you? Uh, my origin story, I like to say, starts with um, the story of a volcano and Turkana boy. <laughs> so when I was taking Anthropology 101 at Lehigh University in spring of 2010, volcanic eruption in Iceland, I think, uh, grounded my professor who was away at a conference. And so we watched, while he could not return to us, we watched a couple documentaries during the Human Origins Unit. And one of them was about Turkanaboy and about how you could more precisely estimate his age using the enamel rods in his teeth. And my mind was blown about how that was possible. You know, that long ago, you could use this precise of a technology. And it really um, just created a spark where I really was interested in looking at what other kind of things we could learn from human ancestors. And particularly, I was super interested in, in diet and nutrition and uh, changes in nutrition and nutrition-related disease over time. And so once, you know, I, I learned about these methods through the documentary, I, I said, are there ways to look at diet too and ways to look at nutrition? And um, I had a lot of really great professors who allowed me to explore these things in, in creative term papers. And 
I was able to cultivate my interests in the relationship between diet, nutrition, evolution, human health over time. Um, so that's my origin story. I uh, found my way to UNC Chapel Hill for grad school, you know, based on my, my overlapping interests with my advisor, Dale Hutchinson, and um, kind of looking at factors that affect um, diet and nutrition, especially at the time of the colonial encounter in North America. Um, and so that's how I have gotten on the trajectory that I'm currently on. And you are currently at the same location as a good friend of ours and a good friend of the pod, Mark Kissel. Oh, yes. Mark's the best. <laughs> uh, Jacob, how about you? Yeah. So Sophia's story started off with the volcano. Mine started off with watching way too much CSI and Scooby-Doo as a child. So I have always loved true crime and investigation, and I love just science and the human body and anatomy. So as a, a wee child, I decided I wanted to be a forensic anthropologist. Mind you, before Bones ever came out, I was way ahead of the curve with that. Uh, so I grew up in Iowa, but I made my way to Mercyhurst University, which is a small private school in Erie, Pennsylvania, known for its forensic anthropology program. So I got my undergrad in forensic anthropology there, and I was fortunate enough to stay on as a master's student and got my master's. And while doing my master's thesis on aging the human skeleton using osteoarthritis, I started to become just more and more interested in living people. And I was really trying to figure out how, you know, we take this forensics information, this bioarchaeology information, but how we really learn from studies with living people and how kind of the cross connection between the two. So I decided to switch from dead people to living people. And I came to UNC to get my PhD in anthropology uh, from Dr. Mark Sorensen working in the human biology lab here at UNC. So the Scooby-Doo reference is great. Thank you for that. That is a first on the show and having grown up on Scooby-Doo as well. Uh, mind you, I think we're all way too young for the original Scooby-Doo, but nonetheless, the mysteries that we watched as children have led to where we are now. So um, let's jump ahead to the special issue, right? So I want to say it is not like it is rocket science to say putting together a special issue is like herding cats and everything and it is something that anyone can do but we don't necessarily always see special issues organized by you know folks junior in their careers i mean maybe, maybe i'm off but i i just see it as uh, something that people don't even realize they can do maybe until a little bit later right so tell us about that process, how you came to put this issue together, who prompted it, uh, what the inspiration was, and what the organizing factor is in all this. So I think to really discuss uh, how this really came about, you have to go back about four years ago. Three of us and several other graduate students from UNC actually rented a minivan and drove from North Carolina to the HBAs and New Orleans. So we had quite a long time in the van together to discuss all things academia and not. And myself, being that I have a skeletal bio background and skeletal aging is something I'm still very interested in and part of my dissertation, you know, we all started talking in the backseat of the van and discussing, you know, how we could start to really kind of combine our interests in the, you know, human skeleton and thinking about sort of the biocultural pathways and influences 
and how it's really important for us as human biologists and bioarchaeologists to really kind of increase this conversation with one another, really. So what we ended up doing is over the course of the next two years, we actually planned an invited poster session at the double APAs that we did in Cleveland. So we sent out lots and lots of emails, basically. I mean, Sophie can tell you more about that. Yeah, we, um, well, we used the AAPAs and HBAs in Austin, Texas. Was that right? That one came after New Orleans? Yeah. Um, we used that as a, a scouting mission and used it as an excuse to have conversations with lots of people that we thought their research was cool. So that made that conference super fun, that we came in with this idea of we want to start looking out for research that we should try to bring into this idea we have for putting together a symposium. And then after that, we ran with the inertia from that conference and we really started looking at coming up with a list of people we had already talked to, people we intended to email that we didn't get a chance to talk to, but we saw their research and loved it. And then also did a lot of looking at, at different anthropology and biological anthropology departments and, and what people were doing related to the skeleton and, and broadening our, our list that way. And so lots of emailing that summer so that we could put together our symposium proposal, but it was fun. It was fun to talk to so many people and see what they were doing related to the skeleton across all these bioant subfields. I love that process. You know, this is the kind of thing that we, I think, as mentors of, of our own students are always encouraging, you know, like start with a session, then meet people, then go to this next thing. Like you guys are literally, I don't know if you feel it, like as a, I'm building my career and I feel it coming together, but the way you describe it and given the stages you say you're at now, and I, we were all at those meetings. So I can, I can, I can envision this like you're, you're building your career. It's like, um, you know, I don't know, Lincoln Logs or what those like Tinker Toys. Like I could feel your, your career is building out in that, just that description right there. So how has it gone? Has it gone smoothly? Has it, has it been like herding cats, which is what we often say about special issues? Have you met amazing people and done amazing things and solved the world's problems? So I think, you know, it definitely has been a learning experience for us, first and foremost, just in the sense of sort of figuring out the timeline and what is too fast to ask for an article from someone, what is too much time, you know? So I think we definitely learned a lot about just the publishing process, right? A really good insight into it, how much time you need to give people. Uh, so that was a little difficult for us at times, you know, reviewing all the articles that we were getting before they were being submitted. Um, then trying to do our own articles. You know, we had, like you said, three articles that came out of it just amongst the three of us. Uh, so it was really a rewarding experience, um, especially because, you know, we're really proud of the fact that our special issue has all the way from early graduate students to senior professors. Um, so we're really, really happy that we're able to collaborate with so many different people, but also getting to collaborate, you know, within our institution with each other. Um, we're very fortunate to come from a very collegial supportive department that really encourages us to do these what i thought fun side projects uh maybe we're starting to change the world um who knows as chris said <laughs> Steph, you seem to be the first author on what i would call like the opening introductory article to this special issue and that article in particular is called phenotypes and pathways working toward an integrated skeletal biology and biological anthropology and so maybe perhaps you can give us a little bit of the historical background in in skeletal biology and in, in why we need to take this more pointed biocultural approach um, versus maybe what has been done in the past for those of us who are not as familiar with that history. Sure. So bioarchaeology itself is like a pretty 
pretty young field. And so there's been a lot of kind of theoretical methodological improvements over the last 50, 60 years. And it's great that even though it's such a small field, because it's so kind of closely interwoven with other, you know, biological anthropology fields, even further field evolutionary developmental biology, like really quickly we're realizing that, you know, there's, we're basically dipping a toe into a very big pool and we should be thinking about that bigger pool of thoughts and ideas and frameworks. So this, this introductory article was really sort of like a summary sort of, of our mission statement with this symposium, which was to kind of stop this sort of binary thinking, both in terms of biology and culture, but also in terms of past and present, right? Like, you know, bioarchaeology is its own subdiscipline and we have skeletal biologists working with modern populations, but it's still the skeleton. And there's still a lot of things that we can talk about um, and learn from each other. And there's things that we can contribute with a perspective on the past to the present and vice versa. So it kind of covers that sort of general push within, I would say, all of biological anthropology to have a more holistic kind of integrated viewpoint and how that's really important in skeletal biology in particular, because the skeleton has very long been viewed as a sort of passive kind of sort of just structuring component where other body systems are acting upon the skeleton. And it's only been really recently and primarily published only in like clinical experimental journals that we're realizing that the skeleton is actually super active and contributing to all these other domains of health. Um, so kind of laying out that, laying out the pathways, kind of highlighting the different biomarkers that would be of use to skeletal biologists working in past and present populations, and then sort of doing a meta-analysis of the literature right now to sort of show that there was sort of a gap in this sort of conversation but it's picking up now and we're sort of just supporting that increased push for more interdisciplinary conversation um, and that sort of holistic viewpoint. Nice. So uh, Sophia, you are the lead author on the paper, Biocultural Pathways Linking Periodontal Disease to Food Insecurity, Immune Dysregulation, and Nutrition. So do tell what is the link there. It's funny to trace the history of our conversations and how this came together without us even knowing about it. Steph and I would be in lab together and I was really focused on um, skeletal lesions of nutritional deficiency and Steph has had incredible training in dental anthropology and we were kind of curious about is there a link between them? You know when they co-occur what does that mean about whole body physiology that maybe we can't study some of these systems that don't preserve as well, that we can't study them as well from the skeleton, but maybe through the patterning of lesions, we could kind of infer some of these pathways. So we got really interested in periodontal disease um, because there's a lot of really amazing literature out there about how it relates to immune system dysregulation, and then also how biocultural factors like psychosocial stress and health disparities can uh, affect periodontal disease risk and expression. So we were doing literature review about some of the connecting pathways between periodontal disease and nutritional deficiencies, both of which we can study using the skeleton, um, and then some of these biocultural factors that we would be really interested in, in understanding how they, they modulate periodontal disease expression to, to be able to take the body and look at it, how phenotypes are co-occurring and what that means about overall whole body physiology in biocultural context. So um, 
we tested mediators between some of these things we were looking at. Um, the relationship between periodontal disease and vitamin C is that mediated by the immune system. Using causal mediation analysis, we did see that um, neutrophils, which are an important immune cell, which are very expensive in terms of how much vitamin C they need to function, um, we did see that, that neutrophils and the immune response might be um, kind of creating this cycle between periodontal disease and vitamin C where low vitamin C increases periodontal disease risk. And then once periodontal disease um, becomes more severe, it's stimulating a, a more severe and possibly dysregulated immune response that's using up more vitamin C. So it kind of creates this cycle that either periodontal disease intervention or vitamin C intervention is needed to, to break this cycle. So that's one of the things we were finding. And the other is we were finding a really strong link between food insecurity and periodontal disease. Um, we looked at whether that was mediated by the immune system as well. And we didn't see as, as strong of a mediating relationship there, but, but that, that made us really interested in what is this link between food insecurity and periodontal disease even when we control for factors like how frequently someone's been to the dentist, if someone is smoking, all of these factors that incre increase periodontal disease risk, um, we're still seeing a really strong relationship there. And so some of that we think might be just the psychosocial stress associated with food insecurity and how that can impact the whole body and um, disease expression. So some interesting areas for us to future explore but what we're finding is that in terms of skeletal biology, periodontal disease can tell us a lot about how the body is functioning um, in terms of other systems and in terms of its um, overall context. And then also um, dental phenotypes might, are a really important thing to consider in human biology and, and living people as well, because they do really contribute to the immune system load. And you also make that really nice cultural connection there with like the food insecurity and what the, the surrounding environment is. And what do you think may have been missed if that component weren't really part of it and people were just kind of looking at the biological markers of periodontal disease? Uh, yeah, in, t in terms of, you know, like what would have been missed if we weren't considering this important? Yeah, I'm just kind of curious, like, what do you think like an interpretation would have been if you, if you didn't think of that, that connection to, um, to food insecurity? Um, so I think that, I think we would have been missing how th this important thing that we, that biological anthropologists can really contribute to is how things like health disparities can, can modulate disease risk and disease severity. Um, and so, you know, kind of thinking about why some people have more severe manifestations of periodontal disease than others, we might be missing that kind of um, embodiment aspect, you know, embodiment of the biocultural context that's so critical for, for understanding why people have different disease phenotypes and, and why they, they, you know, that's kind of what we're looking at is the plasticity of the human skeleton, right? So why is this disease response plastic? A big part of that is related to the biocultural context. No, that's fantastic. And it makes me really happy because again, it's one of those things that people who don't, who maybe don't know the history, it's really good to make those, those connections explicit. Uh, and so Jacob, last but certainly not least, uh, you are lead author on the paper, Pathways Linking Activity, Adiposity, and Inflammation to Bone Mineral Density in Women and Men from the N. Haynes 2007 to 2010. So tell us a bit about that paper and what the big take-home message is and what it can tell us about health and physical activity in the here and now. Yes. So this, 
project, this paper really came out of looking at bone marrow density and how it's often used in clinical research, bioarchaeological research as a marker of frailty or a marker of future fall risk due to osteoporosis. And, you know, really the interest there, but that interest has really primarily been, and if you went to the HBAs and heard Dr. Sabrina Agarwal's great talk, you know, looking at postmenopausal women, right? Or looking at something like extreme athletes. But we know that bone marrow density, you know, is really affected by processes much earlier in adulthood and even adolescence. So a lot of the current research really does kind of focus on more bivariate relationships between things like, you know, physical activity and bone marrow density or pariety, lactation, uh, inflammation markers, various ones. So we really wanted to sort of like take a step back and start to think, what are the actual pathways though? You know, we know that a lot of these you know, lifestyle, cultural, biological variables that have been looked at in terms of bone marrow density are related to one another, right? You know, your activity impacts your waist circumference, right? Your stress impacts your inflammation profiles. So we really wanted to kind of take a, a little kind of simplistic modeling approach and look at the causal mediation that, you know, possibly could be linking sedentary behavior, adiposity, inflammation, and the outcome of bone marrow density starting in adulthood, you know, starting before menopause, before we kind of start to see a lot of these degenerative processes and their effects. So what we looked at is how sedentary behavior is potentially impacting bone marrow density at two different locations and see how that is mediated by waist circumference and CRP but then also how waist circumference, how that relationship to bone marrow density is also mediated by CRP, looking at a couple of different models. So what we found is that sedentary behavior didn't really have as much of a direct impact on bone marrow density as we expected, um, but a lot of it was really dependent on the mediation of waist circumference. Looking at waist circumference, it did really have a direct impact, even when controlling for BMI and body size. So what we really need to start thinking about you know, is the next steps, right? Looking at potentially other markers, pro and anti-inflammatory markers and some of the ones discussed in STEPS paper and how those are related to bone marrow density, but also thinking about, you know, the, the metabolic effects of this, you know, high adiposity, right? And starting to think of how it's related to sedentary behavior and starting to think about who is sedentary. Because as we know, we're a very sedentary population here in the United States. And a lot of that is dependent on things like stress, access to you know, safe places to exercise, occupation. So I think from here, we can start to look at some of those other variables that are also leading into sort of this pathway beginning much earlier in adulthood than is commonly looked. It's super interesting given uh, we just talked to Dan Lieberman about his book, Exercised, and sort of the this idea that uh, we're, we're constantly self-flagellating about our sedentism. And, and then he's pointing out that most, most peoples of the world, probably most time in human history and history have been, prehistory have been like, why the hell would we not be sedentary if we had the fucking opportunity? Because the rest <laughs> of the time is all this goddamn subsistence labor, right? So that, that kind of makes sense. But of course, you know, the, the, the waist circumference piece of it suggests something about, you know, your, your balance, I guess, in life between your sedentism and, and that labor. No, absolutely. And that's something, you know, that's really interesting for our team moving forward and working with this, you know, really rich open source data that we have available to us. Um, you know, there's a couple of great 
papers in AJHB arguing that we should be using these open source data to start to look at, you know, these, the weird populations, right, in the sense of what we can actually start to understand. And I think, you know, one of those things is like you're saying, really starting to understand sedentism, why people are sedentary, and how it's leading into other factors that could be impacting health. And in this case, we're looking at skeletal health, which the argument of our whole special issue is how, you know, it's an integrated system, right? Yeah. Your dental health, your skeletal health is affecting other areas of your overall systemic health. So that's something important to look at in modern and past populations. Yeah, that sounds like an Asher Rossinger uh, initiative. Um, who, it is, yes. Um, so nicely, nice, nice segue to, to other episodes we've had. Folks should, should listen to those. So you, you mentioned our team. Um, is that y'all here or are we talking about a, a different or bigger team? Yeah, so I think, um, and Steph and Sophie, please jump in after me, but you know, working with the three of us, you know, it's been a great collaboration. And now we have all this kind of cleaned up data that I think we can continue to do stuff with. And there's a lot of opportunity there. But also the larger human biology lab at UNC, which is the bioarchaeologists and the human biologists, biocultural anthropologists, you know, I think it's important, as we mentioned earlier, to really rely on our brilliant colleagues um, in sense of, you know, accessing data and getting papers out. And um, we have a lot of other stuff in the works to be on the lookout for in the next year probably because what you all did at least chris and i think is a really awesome thing but also unusual because you're all quite early career uh which is putting together a special issue which is a lot of herding cats and a lot of creativity uh and bill leonard who is the current ajhb uh editor-in-chief is really supportive of special issues and he's made a point of wanting there to be more special issues and so one we love that but two what advice might you have for other folks uh, wanting to put together a special issue, like what should they know going into it? And, and what sort of hints and tips might you give to make sure it's as smooth of a process as possible? I, I think some advice that, that I would give is Steph and Jacob and I had a lot of whiteboard sessions leading up to this where we really challenged ourselves to, to be really specific about our goals for the special issue. And that helped us, that helped us have a sense of direction when we were initially reviewing papers when they were first sent to us, helping to keep them focused in a way that would help Steph integrate all of them into her introductory paper. Um, and then we had really excellent reviewers. I mean, so many people um, who contributed to the special issue just came back to us talking about how amazing their reviewers were in terms of improving their papers. In some ways, the reviewers wanted kind of to, to push the papers in directions that we were starting to lose the cohesiveness. So having that strong focus from the beginning helped us advise our contributors in ways to, you know, to bring it back that we were all still kind of coming up with a cohesive set of papers. So that would be my advice is just, you know, those collaborative sessions, which are super, super fun intellectual spaces to be in, benefited if possible by a whiteboard or a Zoom whiteboard um, of, of really focusing on what we wanted out of the special issue. I would say collaboration in general, I think, was the key to the success. Obviously, as young um, career graduate students, like, we don't have a ton of individual experience. So being able to constantly, like, bounce ideas off each other, split the load, because obviously we're all doing other stuff at the same time. Um, and that was an issue some of our con contributors had as well, is like, okay, I have, I have defending this, I have this other project, like, how am I fitting this in? So making sure that you can split tasks with people and play to each other's strengths 
um, and sort of like share the load mentally and logistically was huge, I think, in terms of being successful and getting this done. And then also what about what sort of front loading is needed when you're like, right, I want to pitch a special issue to HHB. What do you need to have to present to, say, Bill Leonard? What was that initial upfront process like? Since we had done the symposium at the AAPAs, we had um, a happy hour after where we talked to people about our goals and the potential journals we were looking at and um, got everyone's feedback on, on whether they thought they would like to publish this in a special issue and which journal they thought would be the best fit. And so by the time we, we took it to Bill, we had a, a list of our contributors and we could link him to the symposium. So that helped that we had, had done that and, and everyone had already written abstracts for the symposium. Um, so we could give him an idea of here's the body of, of research that we're proposing um, with a few additions of people who we met at the conference who came to the symposium that wanted to be a part or that we wanted to be a part of it. And we, we asked them, can you please bring your research um, like Sharon? So um, there's, you know, that's, we, we, because of the symposium, we had that to give to Bill, which helped. So the front loading, I would say was really before the symposium. And then um, we had that kind of nice packet ready to go to give to Bill. Yeah, so for the symposium at the AAPs, we had to write out a formal proposal about the kind of theoretical framework and goals of that invited posters symposium. So thankfully, we kind of had that that we could modify and sort of adjust based on our feedback that we got at the poster session and who we got to, you know, commit to possibly doing a special issue. So, you know, in terms of kind of thinking about it as like a grant application almost, you know, we kind of had a proposal set up. We had a list of contributors. We had a list of kind of people who are backing it and a, and a good amount of feedback from our original poster symposium. So that kind of made it a little bit easier for us to segue and present it to Dr. Leonard for the HHBs. Okay, so let's start with Sophia to Steph to Jacob. How has done, doing this influenced your, your career so far? What, what lessons would you say you've taken away from this that are, that are having any practical, if any, you don't have to have any, but any practical benefit for you? So I think that just working as a team, as Jacob was kind of saying, you know, I, we're excited to do more research together. Um, and so that has kind of created this whole research trajectory that that's useful to continue on with my research career. And um, it's also taught me that personally, I prefer collaborating with people and just how amazing that is. On So it was interesting doing this at the same time as some of my dissertation articles, which I was working on more independently, that I was feeling so much more invigorated by working with Steph and Jacob. So it's kind of helped me shape my own idea of my preferred research process is doing it much more collaborative from the ground up. So I think those are my kind of biggest takeaways is, you know, incorporating this into my overall research agenda and realizing how much collaboration improves my research and publication process. It's a nice compliment to getting those articles out, right? Feeling that you're part of a team moving things forward while you're suffering on your own on this other, other side of things, so. I think my biggest professional takeaway was probably the professionalization of this process itself, like learning how to put together an invited poster symposium, learning how to put together a special issue, learning how to act as a co-editor, I mean, those are all things that, you know, as a graduate student going forward, you're going to need, but there's, I mean, at least at UNC, like we do have some great professional opportunities, but it's not like there's a class, like how to write a special issue, you know? So kind of just trial by fire doing it and figuring it out together was huge. And through the process, we sort of 
like, you know, talking to people, just hearing other people's experiences, it was really eye-opening to sort of identify the sort of kind of personal research brand that you need as an academic to sort of propel you into getting that tenure track job and being successful later on. It can't just be one thing. It can't just be like one note. Um, the fact that, you know, even though Sophia and I work primarily with skeletal populations in the past, that this is example of us working with modern populations and modern data to show that we can do that, that we can be interdisciplinary, I think is huge. So stepping outside of your comfort zone is very rewarding. Yeah, and I'll just wrap up to say, you know, as sort of the youngest academic amongst the three of us, uh, I was writing this at the same time I was writing my dissertation proposal and writing all of my grants. So it really helped me theoretically to really think through my larger project, which incorporates some of these methods and some of these questions. And at the same time, it was really great to be able to get several CV lines, right? Several publications out of this and get to write that we worked on all of this together. So beyond just sort of the professionalization aspect, it was a really great opportunity that way. And also just to get to meet people and get to start to talk to people with like-minded interests, right? And think about people who to contact for future collaborations in the future, you know? So now we have this kind of fun, you know, close-knit group of people who we get to talk to and, you know, know us and are interested in kind of similar questions about the skeleton and human health in general. I will um, maybe reinforce all of your experiences by saying Karen and I kind of came together in similar ways. These, these early career projects that aren't seemingly central to what you're doing. That's the reason I say it sounds like you're, I could feel your career building out because everything you're saying resonates with me. So it's, it's obvious from our questions and your answers that this is in, this is somewhat peripheral to all of your dissertation projects. So, so do tell us what your even if it's just a title, what, what are your dissertation projects? What are your main projects? Sophia, Steph, and then Jacob. <laughs> I'm interested in, in nutrition transition theory um, and really looking at population level change in um, nutrition and immune system stimulation and psychosocial stress, how all of that affects kind of intergenerational trends in nutrition related disease. One of the things I am, am doing through my dissertation research and continuing is applying that theory to skeletal populations, to seeing what we can learn from looking at nutrition transitions um, in the past and trying to see if we could apply this theory to the colonial encounter and how um, indigenous groups in Southeast North America were, um, whether we could look at their lived experience as a nutrition transition. And so there were a few elements of that that I needed to come together. And so, you know, dietary reconstruction was one of them. I needed to understand um, how dietary composition looked and whether that changed and then reconstruct, you know, try to reconstruct the immune system um, and how that was functioning, which is looking at the pathways that are mediating skeletal phenotypes that um, the work that we did for the periodontal disease article of the special issue really helped with that, helped with kind of trying to investigate some of those pathways. And so one of, one of my projects is um, I worked with the descendant communities of the skeletal populations I researched to um, get their permission to use dental calculus as a potential method for dietary reconstruction. So I've been working with Stan Ambrose and his lab to try to look at the stable isotope analysis of dental calculus and if it is similar to that of bone 
and we did find that it was strongly correlated. So we are working up a publication on that now. So that was what's part of it was trying to look at an ethically compliant method for studying diet that we was amenable with the descendant communities we work with. And another part of my dissertation is applying the same thing we did in the article for the special issue and looking at it, at it in the past populations as well. You know, are we seeing a co-occurrence between skeletal phenotypes? Are we seeing periodontal disease overlap with nutritional deficiencies? What might that mean about their whole body physiology? What might that mean about their lived experience of the, the colonial encounter and all of the psychosocial stress and trauma associated with that? And so that is what I'm doing in my dissertation is really kind of looking at um, applying nutrition transition theory to past populations to understand change in nutrition-related disease over time. Steph, what about you? I'll go. Um, so my dissertation was really looking at developmental stress, so kind of looking at DOHAD-related phenomenon in past populations, and very similar to our project here was to think about the pathways that are sort of underlying developmental stress and later life morbidity and mortality risk. So I was focusing on kind of immune activity, specifically inflammation, and how we can reconstruct kind of inflammatory profiles from the skeleton and sort of create a, a mediation analysis of developmental stress, inflammatory activity, and later life morbidity and mortality risk. And then um, sort of thinking about how that can kind of be intergenerationally transmitted and thinking about how that's important for the development of health disparities. I was going into the field to do this work at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. It is a really understudied skeletal assemblage. Um, my external advisor, Dr. Nicole Smith-Guzman, is one of the only people really working on skeletal remains in Panama. So it was a really exciting opportunity to sort of think about these questions in a novel context. Um, and also pre-Columbian Panama is kind of this classic traditional example of a tropical chiefdom with a lot of social hierarchy. And so it was a, going to be a really fruitful kind of context in which to explore the effects of inequality on embodied um, health and developmental stress and health disparities. But I, I went into the field last January, so I was only there for two months, yep, before the global pandemic hit. And I had to, like within the space of a week, really come home um, because yeah, the Smithsonian was closing down. Uh, the government of Panama was basically going into an intense quarantine and all international flights were grounding. So I luckily got out before that happened, um, which is great because Panama has been in a, a really intense quarantine this entire time, much more intense compared to the US. So fortunately I was able to get out, but it meant that I only had data on 101 individuals out of an intended 400 person sample. So I had to rework some of my questions, rework some of the methodologies. Obviously, some of the statistical tests I wanted to use just weren't going to be feasible with the small sample size. So I'm I was still able to really look at developmental stress and the role of inflammation in connecting to mortality risk, but sort of wasn't really able to think about the kind of health disparities that evolved or developed over time within kind of kinship groups in Panama. So, but yeah. The samples are still there and you're defending, so fuck yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's a foundation for future work is what I'm saying. Yeah. So. What about yeah. you, Jacob? Yeah, so 
for lack of kind of a better term, my project revolves around inflammaging. So kind of the most similar of the three of us to the project I presented, but looking at pro and anti-inflammatory markers, both their baseline and also their reactivity and response and seeing how it measures against biological age. So I'm looking at biological age across several different measurements. So I'm looking at measures of frailty, bone health, cardiovascular health, cognitive function, and then doing some sort of, you know, semi-structured interviews, thinking about aging itself as a concept and, you know, how people's perceived age possibly matches their biological age. Uh, so similar to Steph, my project kind of altered a little bit given the pandemic as well. I was supposed to leave last summer and obviously that wasn't possible. So, you know, adapting it as we go along and uh, thinking kind of these broader questions about biological aging. I feel like the the upcoming generation of academics is going to be so much more flexible and prepared for random shit that happens and being able to pivot your work. Uh, and I'm also seeing some some new stuff coming out with various institutions having fellowships for graduate students, like having to pivot their work and getting them some time and money to do so because so many projects had to be tossed out the window. So I commend you all for handling that as well as you possibly could. It's it's incredibly impressive. Uh, and I guess another important part of that is will bring us to our final question in, in handling all of this stress. Uh, what do you all do to manage work-life integration? What sort of fun things do you do? And I'm going to go in reverse order of what I did before. So Jacob, how about you yeah. go first? Um, so I got myself a research assistant. Her name is Barb. She's my dog. Um, so that's what I do for fun to keep me uh, entertained. My St. Bernard and I go on long daily walks. I also, um, my other true passion is um, trashy reality TV. So that's kind of my uh, end of the day, calm down, you know, anything from VH1, MTV in the early 2000s. That's uh, what a lot of my day is spent doing once I get home from work. So my like, husband and I, We've just started, like, I've always watched it here and there, but never, you know, consistently, but RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, and, yeah. like, it's it's wonderful, but it's also stressful. And then we just discovered that there is a pottery version of the Great British Baking Show. It is the most soothing thing yes. I have ever experienced. It's not trashy, so it might not be the kind of thing you oh, like. No, I, I don't discriminate <laughs> when it comes to reality TV. I have watched, like, 20 seasons of Survivor in quarantine. If you haven't done that in quarantine, you're not using your quarantine wisely. Uh, I mean, you just get so passionate about the contestants, you know, like the drag race. You just are really ruining. So I have, I, one of my sons is a, has watched every single season of Survivor at least once and is a total expert. That's what he wants to do. So I feel that. Yeah. I hope his favorite seasons are Kagayan and Second Chance. Those are the best ones. So. I will ask him. He will know what you're talking about. He has no idea. <laughs> Uh, Sophia, how about you? I have really, in the past couple years, gotten more into backpacking and hiking. And so now I'm in a perfect location for it. So I've been really grateful for that kind of getting this job with a great department while also being in the mountains of Western North Carolina. So getting out into the woods more often has been very healthy as a break from all my Zoom classes. <laughs> and um, I also really like board games and have been trying to find creative ways to still play board games with friends online from a distance, despite the pandemic. And there's a surprising number of, of online board games or online you know, versions of what we normally consider tabletop games that you can play online. So that has been a nice treat, but I'm excited to get back to gathering around a table <laughs> and, and playing some games together sometime soon. What? Has your favorite game, your favorite board game? Uh, my favorite board game is Ticket to Ride. 
which is a <laughs> is a train Jacob game. Jacob seems very excited. <laughs> Toby, why haven't we played this virtually? Uh, oh, I can't find a virtual version, but um, hopefully we can gather around a board sometime soon, Jacob. Is yeah. it about the Beatles or something? No, I, I wish. Um, it's 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 a Jacob. How would you describe it? It's a game where you are trying to build these train routes across a board where you're like intersecting with other people, and um, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a it's basically a race to fill all of your tickets to fulfill all of your routes that you need to do. Like it's like a city planning. Oregon Trail meets. Is there dysentery? Yeah. No, no, no one dies, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> My oxen won't get swept away in a river? What's the point without that? Oh, interesting, interesting. My husband does a board game night every Wednesday virtually with friends, and they have all these crazy platforms for it. I'm, I'm impressed, but I take the time to quietly read on my own. Um, Steph, what does your work-life integration look like? Uh, I, I like to collect hobbies, actually. So this quarantine has been very productive for doing that. I got into knitting, which meant that everyone's Christmas gifts were handmade in my family. <laughs> um, I also really am into gardening, although I live in an apartment, which I'm sure you can tell right now, gets like terrible light. Like it doesn't, there's no direct sunlight hitting my apartment. So it's shade gardening entirely. But also I really love painting and I just picked up oil pastels. Also reading quietly. It's been a delight to- Playing banjo. Um, yeah, harmonica. Yeah, the other stuff, woodworking. Um, it's been nice to like read for fun. I haven't really done that through most of my PhD, but with quarantine and not having to work uh, on campus, I had more free time than I expected. And like for the first time, reading new books, checking books out of the library that were for fun. It was delightful. Well, this has been quite a pleasure. I and honestly, with so many people, this worked I, out well. I know. I was just, I was, <laughs> uh, I was sort of like, thinking of, of like how social media ready this this group has been for for this interview they're all ready with anecdotes and stories and they communicate well with each other and answer is almost like they knew they were getting ready to do a podcast interview and had coordinated it so thank <laughs> you all for being pleasant guests uh congrats on the great special issue and does anybody have any um, anything they would like to, to a parting comment or a, how to get a hold of me or please don't tweet me or anything like that? I, I do have a, a small Twitter following um, since I have a new Twitter, but you can find me at J underscore S Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N. It's a very is, common name if I'd get creative. So. And we just tagged you uh, this morning when I promoted one of the articles. So, okay. <laughs> yes. Follow that tag. You all have been great. Um, and congrats again on a wonderful special issue and coming together for what looks like a really wonderful collaboration. It's been great talking to you all. Thank you for having us. Yes, yes. thank you so much. Yeah.